This is John Howell Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS. Biggest local news story north of us, Kenosha, Wisconsin, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Roy Oaks is an ABC News legal analyst based out of Los Angeles and joins us from time to time. He's been watching the developments in this trial uh, since day one and especially earlier today. Royal, thank you much for your time this afternoon. I know you're very busy. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, big day in the Rittenhouse trial yesterday and, and uh, another big one today because of the defense use of force expert. I want to get to that, but first, back to yesterday. Rittenhouse on the stand, it was risky. It seemed to be completely unanticipated by the prosecution team was it a win or a loss or a draw your mind big win for the defense it's always a gamble uh, especially in a high profile case when there's so much public attention and people have opinions even before the trial starts and it's hard to shake them but it's a gamble to to uh, go up on the stand and subject yourself to cross-examination uh, and a lot of people from oj simpson on have uh, been found not guilty even though they didn't testify but he rolled the dice, and I think he won, because Rittenhouse, I mean, he was 17 when the shooting occurred. He looks like he's 15 or 16. I mean, his face hasn't even cleared up. For him to be sobbing so uncontrollably that he can't even speak, and the judge needed to take a 10-minute uh, 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 recess. I mean, you, you're looking at 60 years behind bars, and so this guy is, is looking at, at a very grim possible future. Now, some people say, well, it looked like he was acting. He was taking a cue from his mother. I don't know. I, I think those tears looked real, and I have a feeling that he did a lot of good for himself by gambling and uh, going ahead and testifying yesterday. Would it be safe to say that any competent defense You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Scoop of idiot salad here. The FAA is getting serious regarding passengers who cannot control themselves. There can be no self-government without self-control. It's about time and long overdue. I heard Kim report this yesterday. And I said to uh, Brett Gogol, our executive producer, send me this, send me this. I want to read this. So the FAA has proposed assessing, give or take, $201,000 in fines on 10 passengers. Do the math. Not insignificant fines here. Who have been accused of physical assault on airplanes. One passenger was hit with a $32,000 penalty after she, I wonder what the breakdown is by gender, after she allegedly punched and screamed, first at family members, before throwing a trash can at a flight attendant on a Horizon Air flight from Austin, Texas to San Francisco. This was last May. Another pastor faces $25,000 in fines, stemming from a February Southwest Airlines flight. It has not been a good year for Southwest Airlines. It's been rough. She is accused of refusing to stow her carry-on luggage and then throwing it. She also held onto the chair's armrest when she was well, attempting to take her off the plane. She shouted loud obscenities and then spit, uh-oh, that's assault, see? Can't do that. Spit on a crew member when getting off the plane. Four other passengers facing some pretty stiff penalties for allegedly assaulting crew members when they were asked to comply with, yes, the federal face mask policy. Now, these people have 30 days to appeal this, but generally they hold. The FAA said there's been over 100 reports of disturbances involving violence and physical assault, assault on airplanes this year. The FAA launched a zero-tolerance campaign at the beginning of 2021 
in response to a rapid rise in incidents. This is why we can't have nice things, America. This is why we can't travel like we used to. Prior to the new policy, unruly pastors could face a warning and counseling. Under the new policy, fines up to $37,000 can be assessed for each federal violation. In addition, you can be referred to the FBI. 5,114, that's how many unruly pastors have been reported to the agency this year. Of those, 3,700 were mask-related incidents. People do not like to wear those masks. The FAA said last week it has referred dozens of instances of unruly pastors, in addition to their being fined, to the FBI for potential criminal prosecution, additional criminal prosecution. So you risk not just the fines from the FAA, but federal criminal prosecution as well. When traveling, I know it's stressful. I know it's a stressful time. I, don't, I know you don't like wearing masks. I know you don't like being told what to do. But it's not your God-given right to fly. That's a privilege. And you have to follow the rules. So don't become a scoop of idiot salad. Don't be stupid. Follow the rules. Say yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. Sit down and shut up. Don't be stupid. You think I'm stupid or something? They call it the Earth, which is a dumb kind of name, but they named it right because we behave the same. We are dumb all over. They're stupid. Dumb all over. Yes, we are. Dumb all over, near and far. Dumb all over, black and white. People, we is not rap tight. In America, you have a right to be stupid. Huh. Are you crazy? Or just plain stupid? Stupid as stupid does, Mrs. You're an idiot. In politics this afternoon on a national level, Chris Christie has a full-blown feud with his old buddy Donald Trump underway. I think it has something to do with, and I find this extraordinarily hard to believe, that he is going to make another run at the White House in 2024. He hasn't started losing weight yet but he has plenty of time. But he certainly is making the rounds. He's going to be part of an Axios HBO special coming up, and uh, he's, he's uh, throwing back at Trump uh, uh, as well as taking the barbs uh, pretty easily. Chris Christie's a combative guy. I have some excerpts for you coming up here in just a few minutes. And also, in honor of Veterans Day, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, a critically acclaimed military historian and author of The Indispensables, the diverse soldier mariners from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who shaped the country. Just a few hundred guys really are responsible for George Washington not only winning the revolution, but surviving the revolution, and then some. So we'll talk to the acclaimed author Patrick O'Donnell coming up in the five as we celebrate Veterans Day. Memorial Day is when we celebrate those who made the ultimate sacrifice. On Veterans Day, we thank all veterans for their service. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. This intra-party fight is fun for the whole family. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, the big man from Jersey, who doesn't play tenor sax, uh, hit back at uh, the big man from Mar-a-Lago, Trump. They're, uh, they're engaged in a little uh, kerfuffle, a little give and take, a little bit of a feud 
Christie drew first blood in Vegas, delivering a veiled shot at Trump during his speech. This happened last week, and I think I played it for you. Oh, Tuesday or Wednesday, I can't remember. It's all a blur. But I've, I've gone through that. We're not going to waste your time on that again. He essentially, he said, look, last election is over. We're moving forward here. We're not going to look back anymore. Uh, we've got to combat uh, Biden and Harris. We've got a lot of work to do. We have to win next November. We have to win in 24. He hasn't declared, but it looks like he's positioning himself to do something. Hasn't started losing weight yet. That's the sure sign that he's running for president. Well, Donald Trump heard that because uh, uh, Christie got a lot of applause, and that irks Trump, obviously. So Trump hit back with one of those statements that would, would have been a tweet before he was thrown off there. Trump wrote, Everybody remembers that Chris left New Jersey with with a less than nine percent approval rating, a record low, and they didn't want to hear his and they didn't want to hear this from him. Exclamation point. Now it's Christie's turn. Tag, you're at Gov. So in a preview of his interview with Axios HBO, Christie coolly says he will not get into a back and forth with Trump. Mike Allen of Axios read the first part of Trump's statement to Christie and uh the big man from Jersey said, I have more work to do. I'm not looking back. I can't look back. I'd rather fight Biden and Harris. I've made the conscious decision, Mike, that I want to spend my time combating the policies of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and trying to help Republicans win governorships and the House and the Senate in 2022. This is not an argument that I'll walk away from. And this will be up on HBO beginning tomorrow night, the entire piece, the entire hour-long interview. Allen ignores that, Mike Allen. And then he, he brings up the approval rating that Trump used to mock Christie. Christie responds by saying, I'm not going to get into a, a back and forth with Donald Trump, but what I will say is this. When I ran for re-election in 2013, I got 60% of the vote. When he ran for re-election, he lost to Joe Biden. Um, I'm happy to have that comparison stand up because that's the one that really matters. And from the Doubledale's fact check department, Christie's approval rating in the Rutgers Eagleton poll when he left the governorship in Jersey January of 2018 was not 9. It was actually 19%. But, you know, Trump got it half right. He had one digit right. So, you know, that's progress, not perfection. So on and on it goes. It's going to get uglier before it gets uh, prettier. I guarantee you that. Also, on HBO, on HBO Max, beginning today, Season 2 of Southside is available. It's a scorcher out there, Ooh. Chicagoland. All right, what temperature y'all want? Well, let me speak for everybody. 75. Hurry up. This is fake. Congratulations, Picasso. You just discovered our new line of placebo thermostats. Gives employees the illusion of control. It is a, <laughs> it is a very, very, <laughs> very good show. And I believe a Season 2, Episode 1 opens with a voice you recognize. It's a scorcher out there, Chicagoland. Waukegan and Naperville both reporting triple digits. Downtown also in the high 90s. Authorities are asking people to stay indoors. Don't be a hero. Excellent work, Lauren Cohn. <laughs> I'm, I'm deeply offended that you have not won an Emmy for your work on Southside yet. It's an outrage. We're going to make it a station kind of push to get you an Emmy uh, this next uh, this next opportunity. But uh, So the first three episodes of Season 2 now available beginning today. That's right. And, you know, it's very exciting, John. You'll like this because it's all about the money, right? I got residuals for season one already. I got those this year. So that's very exciting news as well. New car? <laughs> yeah, not that much money. <laughs> New used I car? Wish. 
<laughs> New every, you, you, you cigar. <laughs> every time you tell me about your residual checks, it reminds me of the old Seinfeld episode where he gets carpal tunnel from signing so many checks that he gets from a Japanese TV network, you know, for his old comedy specials. Anyway, so, well, it's fun to be part of a successful show. I'm glad they're back. Uh, me too. And you, what's nice is that it transitioned from Comedy Central to HBO Max, which means, you know, there's more visibility and better for the show. And it's even funnier this time around. You know, there's like, I haven't seen it yet and I'm excited to see it. And it's great that you can play new clips with me, uh, and my voice in season two than all the ones we've replayed over and over again from season one. So I have more lines this season, but there are funny sections, um, that you'll appreciate, like a whole bit on dibs. Cause the whole thing about Southside is it's a bit about what happens on the South Side. It's not Chirac. It's, I'm the only person that plays like the serious, here's the sort of tragedy happening. Everyone else is uh, in the comedy zone. And that's part of the, it's a dichotomy because you're on in the background quite often and it's gloom and doom, you know, crime, weather issues, political issues. And these guys are just trying to go about their business and everybody has a side hustle on the show South Side as well. Right. These guys, the uh, two friends in this basically graduate from community college and they want to make it big in the world. But meantime, they're at rent to own and they work on those side hustles. <laughs> and then there's funnier things like this year you'll see Diallo Riddle, who we've had on um, the station. He was in studio with you for season one, but he's a lawyer, but he's now running for alderman. So you can imagine the, you know, comedic scenes that come out of the you know, politicking, as well as Bashir Salahuddin, one of the creators, plays a Chicago police officer. He's sort of the low-key, and maybe, John, just maybe there's a scene where he falls asleep at the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And what's great is this isn't imported from the West Coast or the East Coast. This is created and produced and filmed right here in Chicago, and the guys who are behind the shore are Chicagoans, which I also admire. Yeah, they're terrific, you know, and they wrote for Jimmy Fallon. This was sort of their dream with all the hard work uh, and that they did, that they would make this successful. And all the scenes are shot in Chicago. Everyone in the cast is from Chicago. And there's a lot of uh, on social media that's tagged on our um, on our WLS on Twitter and on Facebook. You know, you can see a lot of the behind the scenes this time of how they shot Southside. So that's pretty cool, too. So HBO Max, I know that I have that. That's part of the package, the extensive Comcast bill that I get every month. So I know that I have HBO <laughs> Max. Not shy about their prices, but uh, you know, once in a while I'm glad I have these channels. I don't think I utilize HBO Max for anything else currently. So uh, when I get off the air today, I think I'll uh, fire it up and take a look at uh, at least one or two of those episodes. What, a half hour? Or are they? Yeah, half hour. Yeah, you and me both. I have to start. I have to sign up for the stream and watch them as well. I just want to make sure that I make your essential cuts this week. You're in. You're in. Thank you. I, I can make that happen. <laughs> I, you know, I haven't checked the numbers on essential cuts. I, you know, it, it takes uh, Steve Travicanti. He has to stay after uh, seven o'clock to chop that thing up and put it up on the uh, on the old uh, website. And uh, I hope that it's getting some response. What it is essentially what we consider to be the best interviews of the day, and uh, we give you a chance to listen to them uninterrupted. So that's the. Well, idea. I'll feel better about myself if I get to make the cut on essential cuts. <laughs> well, let's let's first ask. Let me just check in. Brett Gogo, how do you feel this interview is going so far? As far as is it essential <laughs> cut worthy? I'd say it's going pretty well. Obviously, you have final say though, and then assuming sure Steve follows what we say, it should be up on the podcast later today. But Steve's a little bit of a rogue agent, so who knows what actually goes up? And Steve's gaming right now, isn't he? Isn't he playing some video game? 
I heard during the show. What? Huh? It's okay. Go back. I hope you win. So I, do I have to bring in some Molly's cupcakes? Did I see you tease that correctly to get make sure that Steve puts me in essential cuts? Do I have to bring in food? I mean, we have a lot of food the last couple of days, but uh, being a radio station, I think you're aware as well as anybody that will never say no to more food. And just be very careful with that food, okay? Especially if it's just it's delivered unannounced to the radio station. If you order yourself, that's fine. But stuff that shows up at a radio station door, just be very, very careful with it. Maybe actually, cupcakes might not be the best idea. John may or may not have backhandedly fat shamed me last week, so <laughs> oh, maybe something that's a little bit healthier than cupcakes. Well, you he was in a five k run, and I said, really, you can you can you're a big guy for a five k run. Is that going <laughs> to be okay? Are you going to make it? You know, I'm still thought, here. So I thought Brett was looking pretty spiffy for his wedding photos. Well, grading on a Gogolian curve, yes, he looks better. <laughs> he looks better, but it's you know it doesn't look like a triathlete yet. Uh, you know, progress, not perfection. That's okay. It'll be fine. <laughs> I'll take it. Okay, take Aww, it. Oh, Brett. Well, I'm Kim's looking... the healthy one of your bunch. Yes, Kim's the is. healthy one. She is. Lauren, uh, congratulations on another potentially Emmy award-winning season on Southside. <laughs> You can uh, go to HBO Max, and the first three episodes are downloadable. They are streaming now, I've been told, on HBO Max, and congratulations. I'm glad that show's back. It's Thanks, a John. scorcher out there, <sighs> Chicagoland. All right, what temperature y'all want? Well, let me speak for everybody. 75. Hurry up. This is fake. Congratulations, Picasso. You just discovered our new line of placebo thermostats. Gives employees the illusion of control. It's a scorcher out there, Chicagoland. Waukegan and Naperville both reporting triple digits. Downtown also in the high 90s. Authorities are asking people to stay indoors. Don't be a hero. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Happy Veterans Day to all the veterans within the sound of my voice throughout the upper Midwest. Thank you for your service. Thank you for helping to keep us free. Ran across a new book, and I'm, I'm finding this fascinating. I'm pretty well versed in history, a lot of Revolutionary War history, but I've not yet heard the story of the Indispensables, the diverse soldier mariners from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who shaped the country. Mr. Patrick O'Donnell is here. He's a critically acclaimed military historian. I'm not all the way through the book, but thank you for joining us, uh, Mr. O'Donnell. It's great to be with you today, John. I uh, went to school in Boston and traveled to Marblehead a number of times. I never realized the historical significance of Marblehead, Massachusetts. These guys, and it was a diverse group of uh, men, they saved the country what? One, two, three, four times? Uh, multiple times. <clears throat> it, you can't, it's, hardy, it's kind of innumerable in many ways. The, um, I mean, the big ones being the American Dunkirk, if you will, where the Marbleheaders rode Washington's army across the East River, saving it from annihilation after the Battle of Brooklyn. There's a battle called the Battle of Pulse Point, where um, this is right before the Battle of White Plains. This is in October <coughs> 1776. The British Army was about to once again annihilate Washington's army, and these men made an epic stand that bought time for for Washington to to basically fortify White Plains, and they played a, a role there. Uh, the most important, or well, I shouldn't say most important, but the most famous being they rode Washington across the Delaware. And, um, you know, all other elements of Washington's army that didn't have marbleheaders in their boats failed to cross that night on Christmas Eve, or Christmas Day, I should say. And, uh, you know, this they were 
absolutely indispensable to the victory at Trenton, which changed the course of the war and changed the course of history. But that, that's just, I mean, there's, they, they supplied all the early gunpowder. They, they financed the war. They were the idea leaders. They saved the army from a virus <laughs> that was killing everybody. I mean, it's, it's innumerable. Uh, many things that they, these men did. It's really pretty epic. In the crossing of the Delaware, and this is Patrick O'Donnell, military historian, we're talking about this group of uh, gentlemen from Marblehead, Massachusetts, the Indispensables, which is the name of the book as well. Back to rowing them across the Delaware, can you spot men from Marblehead, Massachusetts in the famous painting? Absolutely. It's it's um, it, The painting itself is, I mean, you know, people some some people will point out some of the historical inaccuracies but you know what it's this guy didn't have a photograph to work from or even oral history didn't have you know people to talk to it's really an incredible painting that really captures the essence of what's going on and it captures the marblehead regiment or the 14th continental um very very accurately in the sense that there's if you look closely there's an african-american in the boat rowing uh there's a native american um, the diversity of the unit is captured, diversity of, of, of these men, which were really one of the most extraordinary fighting regiments in American history. Pound for pound, do you think that the um, the indispensables from Marblehead uh, did the heaviest lift in the American Revolution? Uh, it's hard to say. There were, um, maybe. Uh, there, were, there were other units that were really, um, you know, quite instrumental that I, I focused, I, I wrote a book called Washington's Immortals, and that was about the Maryland, Maryland line. Uh, that, that unit was incredible as well. I, I bring out another unit in the book, um, called, uh, Edward Hands, um, men that were riflemen. I mean, there's, there were a number of units that were, that played a role, but these guys played a role in so many different ways. Uh, not just land fighting, uh, but, you know, they were the idea leaders of the war. They were the financers. They formed the Navy and were the men that crewed Washington's first cruisers that took on the mightiest Navy in the world, the Royal Navy. And they captured crucial uh, ships that were laden with gunpowder that literally changed the course of the war, too, because we didn't have any gunpowder or any production. It doesn't matter how many guns you have. If you don't have any ammo or gunpowder, you can't fight a war. And, And this is another place that they were really indispensable. Patrick O'Donnell is uh, on with us. The Indispensables is the book. I recommend it. Back to the Battle of Brooklyn, actually the aftermath. Uh, They snuck away in the dead of night using subterfuge. Obviously, uh, the British thought that they were there and they were going to crush them the next morning. Instead, they all escaped essentially under where the Brooklyn Bridge is now, very treacherous waters, to make it to the southern tip of Manhattan, working their way up uh, what is now Broadway, and they got away. How amazing of a feat was that? Back in uh, what was that, seventeen seventy six or seventeen seventy five? John, this is Mission Impossible. I mean, literally, the, you have. I mean, we all saw how difficult it is to evacuate a country like Af- Afghanistan. This was even w- it was ten times harder because they had this powerful British army that was right at their right next to them in the entrenchments. They had, you know, over twenty thousand strong in the British army. That the Americans only had about ten thousand at this point. They had the East River, which was a mile long, and it was raging at the time. And they had the Royal Navy, the largest navy in the world and the most powerful, only parked about a mile or two down river. They somehow had to pull it off, and they had about two hours to prepare. They said, okay, you, you, they told everybody that they were going to advance. 
um, an attack. In reality, they were advancing towards the river and retreating. And it was there that they told uh, the Marblehead men that they had they had to captain all the boats and organize the evacuation, which is, you know, it, it was it was chaos initially, um, but they were able to pull it off. And um, initially, going across the river that night didn't work out well either. They tried to cancel it. But they kept going. Uh, they couldn't find Washington at the time to cancel the operation, luckily. And, you know, there was all these other things that were going on, believe it or not. The, the reason why they ordered the men to advance is because they thought a, a British spy or an American would betray it. And sure enough, there were loyal Americans that were there that tried to betray the operation and tell the British that we were evacuating. And there's I, I bring out that whole story, which is really incredible as well. I can't wait to read this book. I'm a fan of uh, American history. I know of what you've wrote. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the Marblehead Massachusetts group, the Indispensables. Ballpark figure, how many Marblehead Massachusetts veterans are we talking about? Uh, the regiment was relatively small. Um, we're talking about, you know, 700 men at its full strength, maybe 800. But um, there were some replacements here and there, et cetera. Uh, that, but it was largely, um, you know, a, a relatively small group of men. But that's the, I think that's what really makes the books that I write um, important. It's about human agency. It's about how a small group of individuals can change the course of history. And that's exactly what these men did. And I should point out that there's also some stories of really extraordinary women in the book as well. Um, but these people changed the course of history and okay. uh, and made our country. The Indispensables is the book. I thank uh, Patrick O'Donnell. I also would like to have you back at some time to talk about the Battle of Fallujah, if you can make yourself available for that. Yeah, I'd be happy to come on and talk to you about that. I'm, uh, you know, just let me know. Patrick O'Donnell, thank you very, very much, and uh, happy Veterans Day. Thank you. Folks, on Veterans Day, we have to always remember that there's nothing low risk or low cost about war for the women and men who fight it. And all veterans, service members, their families, caregivers, survivors, I want you to know that our administration is going to meet the sacred obligation that we owe you. We're going to work with Congress, Republicans and Democrats together to make sure our veterans receive the world-class benefits that they've earned. That's the president from earlier today, Arlington uh, Cemetery. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Reading from our next guest piece from Crane's Chicago Business, for a man who can be testy and then some with the media, Chicago billionaire Ken Griffin certainly has learned how to thump his chest in a way the media just can't resist covering. Let's start there with Greg Hines from Crane Chicago Business, columnist and one of the best political observers in Chicagoland for sure. Greg, welcome back to WDS, sir. How are you? Always a pleasure, John. Any surprise that Ken Griffin has gotten uh, angry enough with Pritzker that he's willing to dip into his very, very deep pockets to fund anybody that he thinks can knock Pritzker out of office? No. I, t I have to tell you, if there's anything more entertaining than a good political fight, it's, it's, a, it's a good political fight between two billionaires who each have the money to trash each other. And uh, they're doing just that right now. Um, uh, on top of that, uh, Pritzker and, uh, and uh, Griffin seem not to like each other. I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, it goes back a bit, but uh, but uh, Griffin was very tight with former uh, Governor Bruce Rauner. He threw a lot of money at him. Uh, Prisker knows it, so they've been kind of uh, clawing at each other off and on, and it's really gone public in a big way in the last uh, 24 hours or so. 
I went to I went through the numbers with my audience a few minutes ago. The kind of money that Ken Griffin put behind Rauner when he initially ran, then his reelection bid, which failed. Not to mention Pritzker's graduated income tax was defeated. I, I would say largely because of the money Griffin put into opposing it with all those uh, commercials and efforts. I mean, the, does the bad blood predate that? Is there something we don't know about these two guys? I have a hunch there probably is. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't tell you what it is, but uh, my distinct impression is that they just don't like each other and that, and that, uh, and that the, the political battle is just kind of a continuation of that. But I don't know that for a fact. Is politics only for the rich now? You know, you, you can't help but wonder about it. Um, uh, it. It's gotten it's gotten so expensive. There's so much money that goes into uh, into uh, campaigns, and there's uh, there's somewhat tighter limits on who can give uh, that uh, the, the rich guys and the rich girls. There's a few rich girls out there um, have kind of an advantage starting right up front. Uh, you know, and in this case, I mean, they have legitimate things to argue about. Uh, Griffin is very excited about crime in the city, which is legitimate. Uh, Persky says, hey, you're trying to bring back the old days, and, and and he doesn't say it, but it's true that the crime is more a, a, a city responsibility than a state responsibility. But, yeah, you can look all over, all over the country. Uh, 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 I mean, Joe Biden doesn't have any money, but Donald Trump had a lot of money. A lot of people running against uh, also running for president had a lot of the money. You know, that's the way it is. Um, we shouldn't be, but we're all influenced by those lovely little TV hit ads, and they cost a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, I, I think TV ads are overrated, I'll be honest with you, but I guess, you know, billionaires have billions. They're going to spend it someplace either on political advertising and their own ego, essentially, or to, you know, shoot themselves, you know, into the upper atmosphere for well, 15 they minutes. They could endow your show, John. They could give you a big research budget or something. <laughs> I, guess they I guess they haven't done yeah, that. Yeah. They could buy cranes, too. I Sure, you know, little, little ego projects. Now, out of the out of the Republicans who have declared, let's start with them first. So Gary Rabine has some money. I know he's a wealthy businessman. Bailey's a wealthy farmer. Schimpf, I don't think, has any money. What do you know about Jesse Sullivan? He's a venture capitalist. Does he have tall cake in the league of Griffin, or would he still need Griffin? No. I mean, he has more than you have or I have. Um, I'm assuming, John, that uh, that uh, you're not uh, you're not worth $30, $40 dollars If I'm wrong, please disabuse me of that. Um, but uh, they have some money, enough to get started. Uh, he's a uh, he's a uh, downstate. Uh, he's a downstate native. He uh, moved out to California, uh, made some money in the venture capital business, came back recently, and, and he's a young guy, he's 37, I want to say. He says, Shazam, here I am. I'm young, I'm fresh, I'm not a politician, and I want to serve you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you'll buy that, or maybe you won't. Uh, we'll find out. But no, he's not He's not nearly in the same kind of financial aid as Pritzker would. But that's this is where uh, this is where Ken Griffin comes in. What Griffin said is, if, if there's a candidate who can win, and he carefully did not identify that, uh, but if there's a candidate that can beat Pritzker, I'm I'm all in. I'm going to give them whatever they need. Wow. So that's that's where that's where. So he doesn't need his own money if he can get uh, Danny Warbucks to contribute. But we don't know if that's going to happen. These guys must be beating the door to Ken Griffin's office. Beating down the door uh, at the I th office. I think, I think uh, yeah, one way or another, there's, uh, everybody's trying to uh, make their case to uh, to him that uh, he's the guy they ought to they ought to back. Um, you know, we'll see how they can do it. Uh, uh, all of them uh, uh, so far have been going 
they're well on their political right. They're doing what Republicans are doing in other states. They're competing for the Trump base. So, uh, you know, they're, each of them is going overboard to show, uh, show about how they most dislike mass mandates or the kind of stuff the press group has done. Um, we'll see how that plays with Ken Griffin. He's pretty conservative on some stuff, economic stuff. I'm not sure he is where he is on social issues like that. Uh, but you're right. They're trying to press him. Sure they are. Let's throw another billionaire's name out there. Todd Ricketts, is he out as far as a gubernatorial bid? I, um, I've seen no sign that Mr. Ricketts wants to get involved. Um, uh, he is strikes me, and he struck other people in the business as a uh, behind-the-scenes, pull some strings, but not in a public setting kind of way. Um, the problem with, with being really rich is you're used to having your way. And that and kind of bluffing and beating your chest, you know, and that works may work in the business world sometimes, but it doesn't work in politics. In politics, you got to suck up to everybody and and, and, put, and show that you love them even if, even if you can't stand them. Um, uh, I think there's doubts as to whether Todd Ricketts could pull that act off or whether he wants to try it all. Although I will admit that that Prisker has done a pretty good job of learning how to schmooze. When uh... Governor Rauner would come into the radio station. Inevitably, he'd be in a flannel shirt and a, and a Harley vest. Uh, yeah, it's kind of the, if, if, if you're rich, you don't act rich, um, except in, in, in dressing down, you're doing what rich people do. Uh, you dress down. But, yeah, it's just, yeah, just don't call him Mr. Rauner. I'm just good old Bruce, old country boy. Rode my, rode my, rode my hog here, and, uh, and uh, you know, just going to sit down and have a couple brewskis. I mean, remember... <laughs> You know, that's that's always good politics. I think Jim Thompson, the former governor, was famous for that. He uh, he knew how to get along with the press. He did, he'd be out, uh, you know, downstate corner. He'd pull over the beer, some some little dive, and give everybody free beers, and then he'd stop in an antique place. Oh yeah, and buy 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 a hundred thousand dollars worth of antiques. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, ordinary kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, just another day, another day, another day with people. You know, I'm just always stunned. If I was a billionaire, and just uh, to, to clear up the clear up the confusion, I'm not. But if I were a millionaire, exactly. Uh, I there, there's no way I would spend billions of dollars on politics. I mean, there's so many other things to do with your money. It just seems like you're throwing it down the rat hole in, in politics. I wouldn't begin to think of that. Well, you know. I'm going to take a I'm going to take a somewhat uh, less blase attitude toward that, uh, and uh, and assume that uh, yeah, at a certain level, this is about ego, and it's conquered one world, and now that maybe some of these guys want to conquer the political world. Uh, but you know, I'd also like to think that these guys, because they're rich and have connections, and maybe a little a little more harsh sense on some things than a lot of people do, have figured out that who leads the government and who's in charge is really important. I mean, look at look at uh, look at COVID policy, just to pick one example, and where we are as a country, and whether we've done the right stuff or the wrong stuff, and how we get out of this mess we, we've landed ourselves in. I mean, who's in these jobs and who leads is really important, and maybe at least sometime, maybe these rich guys realize that. Well, if the rich guys could get into office and hire pros uh, to run, you know, the CDC and the other agencies the federal government is in charge of, I'm all for that. But when they get into office and then they start dismantling and firing the pros, I have a problem with that. I think that's that's a, a fair bottom line to have. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the deep state. I'm a big fan of the uh, uh, Illuminati and Illuminati's both. I like the pizza place and the Illuminati. 
I'm a big fan of uh, all, all three-lettered uh, federal agencies, including the IRS. But let the pros do their work. Hands off. Well, you know, hey, well, you know Henry Hyde, the, uh, the late congressman from the Northwest Suburbs, the, the father of the Hyde Amendment of abortion fair. <clears throat> Um, he always used to say, he gave a speech when there was a resolution for congressional term limits up one, one year. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people think term limits are great. You want to get new blood in there. You know, I want to get rid of the old creeps and whatever. And I gave this speech, uh, and uh, he said, you know, when you're in the gurney and they're taking you into the, into the emergency room for open-heart surgery, do you look at the doctor and say, doctor, are you a careerist? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Exactly what you said. You want experience. You want people yeah. who know what they're doing. Gosh. Uh, who wrote The Fifth Risk? Um, and he, he wrote a book uh, recently on um, county health directors. Gosh, I forgot his name. Now, guys, Google that for me real quickly, please. The Fifth Risk. Michael Lewis. Thank you. Big short. Uh, uh, Moneyball. Uh, terrific writer. I'm sure you're familiar with him. His book, The mm-hmm. Fifth Risk, is essentially about the bureaucrats inside our federal and state governments that really keep us all afloat and how they are routinely criticized by every politician that gets up there and pontificates and screams about the bureaucrats, blah, 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 blah. And yet they've, they've pulled our fat out of the fire since the beginning of the country. The Fifth Risk, I recommend it. It's a great book. Uh, we'll pick it up. All right, sir. I'll send it to you. I have two copies. I'll send you a copy. Oh, bless you, John. Okay, hang on. Hang on one second, and then uh, Breck Ogle will get the address that you want it sent to, and I'll send it to you directly, okay? Promise. Okay. Thanks, Craig. Appreciate it. Greg Hines from uh, Crane Chicago Business joining us here on the Big 89. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Make sure you thank a veteran today. Not only is it Veterans Day, but November is Military Families Month. My next guest, Jeff Gottesfeld, he's the author of 21 Steps, Guarding the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And he was part of a, a, a ceremony, a Veterans Day ceremony, actually happened yesterday. He participated at the National Archives, and I thought it would be a great guest to talk to on uh, November 11th, the 11th hour, the 11th month, the 11th, or the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month, and the beginnings of uh, Veterans Day after World War One, obviously. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the Big 89. How are you? It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. How'd the event go yesterday? It was magnificent. Uh, The National Archives said it had the largest viewership of any educational program that they've done like it. Uh, They were estimating 30,000 sets of eyeballs on it at schools around America. Uh, I shared the platform with uh, Sergeant First Class Chelsea Porterfield, who was Sergeant of the Guard. Uh, kids learned a lot. <laughs> How significant was it this week that the public could actually get closer to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier than previously? Well, I was one of uh, those people who were able to place flowers at the tomb. I did it on Tuesday with my colleague, Michelle Green, uh, whose father uh, was a Tuskegee Airman uh, who flew in World War II in Korea and Special Ops Vietnam. Uh, I was also with Michelle's mom. Um, there's something really special about getting close, and it's a way, I think, to bring us back to the importance of, of selfless service, which is the epitome of what the military does. Jeff Gottesfeld, his award-winning children's book is called 21 Steps, Guarding the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Jeff, how can parents teach young people the importance of our military, the sacrifices of our military, 
and the importance of Veterans Day in particular? Well, besides reading this book, I would encourage kids to talk to their friends and to their teachers and find out who the military kids are in their lives. It doesn't get talked about very much. I go into schools, first thing I ask, if you've got a brother or sister or mother or father who's active duty military or who served, raise your hands. The hands go up and the classmates' eyes get wide because they have no idea at all. If you can start with the peer group and the friends and begin to understand what their lives are like and what their moms and dads' lives are like, you can start to get very sensitive to issues of the importance of the military very quickly. We've lost track of the military, I think, since we've eliminated the draft, and I understand the attraction of the all-volunteer Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps. I understand that. I understand the advantages there because any soldier would tell you, I don't want somebody who doesn't want to be there next to me uh, during combat. That being said, do you think we've essentially created a permanent warrior class in America that's that's primarily a couple of different de demographics and most of the families in America essentially don't have skin in the game any longer and is that corrosive? I think we've created a, a permanent disconnect um, between average people who are not in the military and the importance of selfless service and, and the possibility of risking your life for your country. Um, I understand why it's good to have a volunteer force too, but you know, it is one thing to see people put their grandparents' pictures up on Facebook on Veterans Day and quite another to have your life depend on someone very, very different from yourself. Your point's extremely well taken. I've never heard of the organization Purple Star Schools. What, what is that organization? Purple Star Schools are those that have a, a certain percentage of military kids uh, in them. I think it may be as many as, as 20% or more. I spoke in some of these schools in North Carolina, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's a remarkable thing to do my you know my do my question at the beginning of every talk and see sixty five or seventy percent of the hands go in the air. They understand. It sounds that. like it sounds like your book. I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I was, I was I was thinking that your book. It sounds like it would be an excellent gift uh, during the holidays. Twenty one steps guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier for your kids or maybe your grandkids. It's outstanding. If you want your kids for a change to read about the best of the United States, this is the book for them. Yeah, we, we really need to, we need, we need to do a better job of presenting the positive as aspects of current American life and culture and our history. We seem to be uh, just uh, taking every opportunity to dump on ourselves nowadays. It's easy to do that, and a mature look at America would be all-encompassing, and that all-encompassing look would also include the idea that our military is a tremendous force for good, yeah, not so, only in the nation but in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeff uh, Gottesfeld, thank you so much for your time, sir. We'll talk to you again, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Have Pres a beautiful day. You too. The Bye. president was at Arlington earlier today talking about the repeated deployments now that we expect out of our professional military. The American people are forever grateful and in awe of what you've accomplished. But in fulfilling their mission, so many veterans and their families and caregivers have been through hell.
Some facing deployments after deployment, spending months and years away from their families, missing birthdays, anniversaries, and collections. I remember one of the last times I flew into Iraq in the so-called silver bullet. I remember walking up to this, the cockpit. And the crew masters, along with the pilots, were up there. And I said, how many of you, is this your first tour? No one raised their hand. There were five people. Second tour, no one raised their hand. Third tour, two raised their hand. Fourth tour, two raised their hand. Fifth, one raised their hand. Thank you, veteran. Happy Veterans Day from all of us here at WLS. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Big fan of our next guest. When he was with the Allman Brothers, I saw one of the best shows of my life at the Chicago Theater. He is a singer, songwriter, extraordinary guitarist, producer Warren Haynes is here. The new album from The Mule, Government Mule, is out tomorrow. Heavy Load Blues is the album. Warren, welcome to the Big 89. How are you, sir? Wonderful. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I am very excited that this new album is blues-based. Not that you haven't played a lot of blues with the Allman Brothers or with the Mule previously, but I've been waiting for Government Mule to actually put out a blues album, and this is your 10th album, ninth or 10th album, isn't it? 11th. Well, it, it, it's a tough one because we, uh, we have a record called Mighty High that's all re remixes, dub-style so it's hard to decide whether to count that one or not. But, yes, I think we're calling this number 11. Well, you know, we're fans, obviously, here in Chicago, big fans of, of the blues. And you, you of course, uh, uh, play a lot of uh, Chicago blues on this album, too. Uh, Junior Wells and Elmore James and Bobby Boo Bland. And snatching it back, I also have a version, I think, of that tune by Albert Collins. Are you familiar with uh, his work? Absolutely. Love Albert Collins. And and snatching it back, this version is terrific. I've already let my uh, uh, listeners dip into that one this afternoon. So how tough was it to make it through this, this pandemic, the downturn in touring, and were you guys able to stick around together, or did you all go your separate ways and have to do this remotely, or did you finally do this in the studio? Well, uh, it was tough. Let's start with that. It was hard for everybody. Uh, we were out of, out of work for about a year and a half. Um, we have two in California and two in New York. So whatever we do, two people have to fly. And so nobody was ready to get on an airplane until we were all vaccinated. Uh, so we, once everybody was, was vaccinated, we decided to go into the studio for a longer period of time than we ever had. Uh, and we, we made two records back-to-back -back in the same studio. We were set up in two different rooms, a small room with low ceilings and old small amplifiers for the blues record and a big room with a big ceiling with all our toys for the regular government mule record. And we would work. We'd go in in the, in the morning and play with government mule new material all day till around 8 or 9 at night. Then we'd move over into the blues room and play blues for the rest of the night and come back the next day and do the same thing. And it was a, a great way to kind of get our feet wet and start getting ready to work again. Warren, in the years when you guys had to, well, you in particular, had to tour with the Allman Brothers, did you ever run into any conflicts with the guys in Mule saying, oh, come on, we're just getting going with this record, now you're going back out, 
with the Allman Brothers? Were there troubles that way? Well, when we started Government Mule, it was a trio, and two of the three of us were in the Allman Brothers, so we had the majority. Uh, and in the beginning, it was kind of a side project that just grew wings and, and kind of built up its own steam. Uh, there were obviously scheduling conflicts and, and uh, things that mostly fell on, on someone else to, to deal with. And there was a time when Government Mule opened for the Alma Brothers and, and stuff like that, which made really long nights. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of all in a day's work. I mentioned this to my listeners earlier, too, but uh, one of the best shows I ever saw, my girlfriend at the time was a friend of one of the Allman Brothers sound engineers, so we were able to go in and essentially sit at the soundboard at the magnificent Chicago Theater, and that was just one of the musical highlights of my life. I never got to see you at the Beacon in New York City, but my understanding is Mule will be out there bringing in the new year. Yeah, we do uh, pretty much uh, traditionally uh, uh, two or three nights at the Beacon for New Year's, and this year, uh, obviously, we're back to doing that. So the 30th and 31st, we'll, we'll be at the Beacon. The Beacon's kind of my home away from home. I've, I've played there close to 300 times. Uh, and it's just, it's like uh, so comfortable being there. We always have, have good shows there. And, and the Chicago Theater I love as well. I've played there quite a few times. Warren Haynes is here, Government Mule, new album out tomorrow. I, I, I can't say enough about your playing. I, I've been a fan of yours, you know, since 94. That was the Mule, and then with the Allman Brothers all the way through. Um, years ago, probably better than 20 years ago, there was a benefit concert after Woody died, and the money went to Woody's daughter's education. 20 years after the fact, how is she doing? She's doing great. She graduated. She's a... Uh, uh beautiful young woman she's uh, a, a dear friend i'm i'm her godfather and she's uh, doing wonderful savannah woody is uh, is a wonderful human being musically talented yeah yeah you know and actually at the second we did two of those shows uh and at the second one for woody she got up and sang soul shine with me and uh i started crying in the middle of it I've used a, a a tune that you cut three or four years ago uh, because you knew America was going to get very, very angry. Do you still play Stone Cold Rage in your set? We do, yeah. I think uh, for a few reasons, one of which uh, I really like the song, and one of which is it's even more relevant now than it was uh, when we recorded it. That's for sure. New album is out tomorrow, Heavy Load Blues, half originals from Warren, half uh, basically blues covers, and a lot of this is Chicago blues. So uh, check it out, Heavy Load Blues from Government Mule. Warren, it's a pleasure talking to you again, sir. My pleasure. You know, had I uh, started playing guitar at the beginning of the pandemic, I might be a hundredth as good as he is right now, had I been practicing regularly. Warren Haynes, new album is out from the Government Mule uh, tomorrow. Kim Gordon, have you heard of Government Mule previously? No, I have not, but it was very interesting. Well, he's, you've heard of the Allman Brothers, no doubt. Yes. You kind of rescued the Allman Brothers. Uh, he was, um, Allman Brothers had a lot of trouble. <laughs> and, and they had, you know, basically what the country's going through now between red and blue, 
the Allman Brothers went through that years ago with the Greg Allman half of the band and the Dickie Betts half of the band. Did Cher have anything to do with all of that? No, Cher was gone by then. Uh, but uh, that long-lived uh, marriage between Greg uh, Allman and Cher, which lasted all of uh, one motel stay, I think. But uh, Warren was able to kind of work his magic and keep those two factions essentially together. And had he not been involved, the whole thing would have tanked many, many years ago. But they were able to run it out, uh, ran out the the Allman Brothers to the very end. Obviously, Greg died probably two years ago, maybe three years ago. By the way, he has a great final album recorded in Macon, Georgia. Uh, the Greg Allman live album was his last album. Recommend it. It's just terrific. Great horn section. Everything is kind of truncated because one thing about the Allman Brothers that always irritated me is both guitarists, Warren, Dickey, the other guitarists who have played with the Allman Brothers, they all have to play uh, a long solo on every song. And in addition, you know, and I understand they're a jam band, but they could have used just a little bit of editing. And I think once uh, Warren Haynes got in there and started working with that band, he seemed to trim things down just a little bit, which made it more listenable to my ear, to my ear. But uh, that the Government Mule albums are all pretty good, and this guy is an unbelievably gifted guitarist. So, uh, And I recommend the Blues album. I've only heard a bit of that, but if that's more your thing, it's going to be a little easier than the other Government Mule stuff. But it's all worth checking out. So... Run out to your local vinyl record store. I think Beverly Records may have it on special tomorrow. So check that out first. Otherwise, Hegwish Records will have it. Or the Jazz Record Mart might might even have it in stock tomorrow uh, downtown. So check out those fine locations. John Howell, Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS.